Uh, glad to have you all here this evening. Um, we will open in prayer and then we'll, um, Lord's willing, Lord willing, finish the Lord's Prayer tonight. And then uh, we will do our uh, prayer time. So let's open with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for an opportunity to study your word. And Lord, how blessed we are to have your word in our hands, not to be reliant on uh, a priest or a scribe to read it to us, but uh, to have the ability to take it home, to understand it, to have your Holy Spirit dwelling in us to give us understanding. Lord, would you do that even tonight? Would you show us your word? Would our uh, prayer lives be shaped because of what we read tonight? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this is part four of our study in the Lord's Prayer. And uh, so we're in Matthew chapter 6. And we'll take a moment to read the entire Lord's Prayer. It's really just the last verse of it that we will uh, focus on tonight. And there's two ideas, two big ideas expressed, expressed in this one verse that should help shape our prayer and our understanding of it. So, Matthew chapter 6, we'll begin reading verse 9. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Here's our verse for tonight. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So two big ideas from verse 13 here, and we'll just jump right into them. Uh, the first is this. We should ask God for deliverance from, there's a from missing here in my slide, from sin, Satan, and sad events. I had to get it alliterated. There it is. And I will show that to you. Look back at verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Uh, this prayer, obviously coming from Christ, being the Word of God, is there's so much packed into it. And I want to open up a theological discussion about the meaning of this sentence and show you uh, that the discussion only exists because of how theologically rich this prayer is. Okay, so there's two words in this sentence. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There's two words that we have to understand well to understand thoroughly what Jesus is praying for. And the first is the word temptation. Jesus prays an example prayer. Lead us not into temptation. Temptation in Scripture, and this word in particular, refers both to what you think of when you think of temptation. Okay? When, when I say the word temptation, you're immediately thinking of a, a temptation to sin. And the example I always go back to with the kids is, you know, mom has just finished a fresh batch of chocolate chip cookies, and she's laid them out on the counter to cool, and she's told you no cookies until after dinner, and then she leaves the room. And what happens now is what we normally think of as temptation, Okay. You know the right thing to do, but the opportunity to do wrong is there. 
and your flesh is telling you do wrong. And the devil is giving you every excuse. Mom will never know. I doubt she counted them. Moms always know, don't they? Don't they? That's what I found as a child. I'm not a mom, but I know from experience that moms always know. But, you know, the, these, the devil brings these thoughts. Well, you know, mom will never know. And, you know, I know what's best for me. This won't spoil my dinner. Mom thinks it will, but I know better. And all these excuses. So this is, this is a form of temptation, but the word used here is broader than our word for temptation. I've talked, I've talked before about when we're dealing with a text that comes from another language, which the Bible is, we have all the difficulties that translation brings with it. And one of those difficulties is the idea of range of meaning. Okay, Every word has a range of meaning. And that range will only overlap somewhat with a word from another language. And I talked about this at length when we did our, our study on the Bible, so I don't want to go through all of it again. But we have that issue here because we have a word is being rendered temptation, and temptation is part of what this word means, the way we think of temptation. But this word is broader than the way we would use the word temptation because it also includes trials. And you know what a trial is. A trial is when you go through something that is bad, that is unpleasant, that is not the thing that you would have chosen. So you get sick, that's a trial. You lose a loved one, that is a trial. You are at odds with a family member, that is a trial. So this word, when Jesus prays, lead us not into temptation, it means both temptation to do wrong and also a trial. But can you see how those ideas are connected? Because when you face a trial, what happens in your heart? You're tempted to respond wrongly. You, you are tempted to lose your faith. You are tempted to say things that are not right about who God is. You are tempted to despair and to, um, to be cast down. So you can see that trial and temptation are connected. And where those English words overlap is where this word that Jesus use, uses is. So there's a lot of discussion between theologians. Which of these things is Jesus talking about? Is he talking about uh, we should pray that God not lead us to be tempted to sin? Or is, is Jesus praying that God would keep us from bad things happening to us? And a lot of times people who write books and make money writing books and do a very good job, they love to pick a side. The fact of the matter is when you're dealing with a word with a broad meaning, you don't have to pick a side because Jesus chose that word for a reason. And it really can be both. Really, all of that can be packed into this word. And let me show you another word in this sentence that helps clarify because Jesus picks another broad word. Okay, He says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Evil does the exact same thing as the word for temptation. It's very broad. When we, if I say evil, you think like Disney villain, right? You think like mustache twirling, okay? And that's what we would call moral evil. 
Okay? Somebody who does something that offends God or something that is morally wrong according to God's standard, that is moral evil. But there's another form of evil that we find in the Bible and that this word refers to, and that would be natural evil. Natural evil is bad things that happen to you. Um, an earthquake would be a natural evil, okay? But other things are natural evils too, like I already talked about. Sickness, a natural evil. Even uh, conflict between mankind. Um, you know, you think war, or even more simply in our lives, somebody who's not treating us right, that is also a natural evil, although there's an element of moral evil to that too. So, Again, the discussion from all the theologians comes up, well, which is Jesus talking about in the second phrase of this sentence? Is he talking about natural evil or moral evil? And to be honest, the commentators I was reading in preparation for this lesson split pretty much right down the middle, and they all picked a side. And I would suggest to you again, you don't have to. Because here in this sentence, Jesus picked two broad terms that have the same broad meaning. So really, if you, if you take Jesus' words for everything that they are, there are four things that we can ask for that come from this one request of Christ. Okay, so here we go. Let me, let me, I have them on the screen for you. Um, number one, ask God to keep you from areas of temptation to sin. Lord, keep me from being tempted. Lord, keep me from being tempted. And lead us not into temptation is Jesus' words. I think that's a totally appropriate thing to ask for. Jesus, keep me far away from sin. Don't even let me fall into the temptation for sin. Being tempted is not a moral evil in itself. But I think it's fine to ask God, Lord, keep me, keep me far away from the opportunity to sin. I, I love you and I want to serve you so much that I want to be far from sin. But the fact of the matter is, Though we should ask for that, God doesn't always answer that in the affirmative. I mean, even look at Jesus himself. God allowed Jesus to be tempted. So I think also, um, Jesus says, lead us not into temptation. Right now we're talking about moral evil. But deliver us from evil. We should also ask God that if we do face temptation, that he would deliver us from it. And by deliver us, I mean that he would make a way to escape, that we would be able to bear it, that he would give us the strength by his grace to overcome temptation. But then also, I think, as we apply this, this sentence to natural evil, there are two more things we can ask for. There's really four requests we can draw out of this. Ask God to keep you from disaster. You know, tonight we'll mention several prayer requests where people are waiting for test results. Is it good to pray that their test results would be good? Yes. In that sense, we're praying, God, deliver us from evil. Lead us not into this trial, this temptation. That's a wonderful thing to ask for. I think that this is, that's part of what Jesus is modeling for us. But will we always have that prayer answered in the affirmative. We've talked about this a lot. No, sometimes God in his sovereignty, even though we ask to be delivered from evil and from trials, will allow us to go through them. So then what do we ask for? We ask God to keep us faithful in disaster. 
when bad things come, we are preemptively asking us, Lord, don't lead me into this trial, but if you must, deliver me through the trial. Help me have the strength to be faithful to you in spite of it. Okay, let's, let's read the whole of verse 13 again. We'll see the part that we're missing. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I'm very thankful for well-read church members. And let me give you the big idea, and then I'm going, to talk, talk, I'm going to tell you about something that somebody brought me an article, and I'll talk about it for a minute. Um, here's the big idea. We should declare the praise of God in our prayers. We're going to talk about declarative praise and its value in just a moment, because that's how this prayer ends, with declarative praise. Okay? So let me back up and talk about the article, and it wasn't news to me. It was news to a church member, a faithful church member. Um, they brought me this article, and, and it was, at a layman's level, an explanation of why this phrase, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, does not appear in most modern translations, and if it does, it appears in a footnote or it appears bracketed. We just did a very long series about the Bible and how we got it and all that. And I'll give you this short version of this explanation because many of you sat through a very long, like 10-week, how long did we do that? 10-week thing. Okay. So there are some questions about the Greek text, and there are really two ways to approach it. Either you approach it as though the church's long-standing opinion of these texts must be correct because of preservation from age to age, or you approach it as though we've always had to pay attention to the text and guard the text and there are recent efforts to make sure that everything that's in our Bible should be in there. And there's nothing that should be that isn't. <laughs> anyway, you know what I'm saying. And, uh, you know, we have a lot of handwritten copies. We have thousands. We have an embarrassing number of ancient copies of the Bible, which is amazing. We talked about how reassuring that is. There's just a debate about what should be the method for determining which variants of the text to keep in. So I'll say this. The current movement of theological thought would lead you to believe that this phrase was not written by Matthew. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I associate every week with lots of people who disagree on the way of thinking that leads to either of those conclusions, okay? Let me tell you why. Uh, and I'll say, out of all the questions about text, this is one of the hardest ones. And because I have a few minutes, I will give you a Cliff Notes version of why. And this is the Wednesday Night Crowd, and most of you went through my whole lecture, so you're going to understand what I'm saying. Um, the, the, the few texts that are the oldest that we have, that today's critical scholars love the most. Do not include this phrase. However, we do have very, very old texts that do. In fact, uh, there are other debated passages that don't appear nearly as old as this phrase does. Uh, for instance, like I said, our very ancient 
manuscripts that they really draw from a lot, um, they don't include this, but there are church fathers who are writing as early as 200 AD, which in the terms of textual criticism of every piece of literature is very close to writing date. Very, very close. Okay? Like people would have been alive whose grandfathers were there when the Bible was originally written, or great grandfathers would have been there when the Bible was originally written. Okay? So we're, um, we're very close in time, and there are church fathers who are including this phrase when they quote the Lord's Prayer from Matthew. Uh, and a complicating issue is if you read Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer, this phrase does not appear. The Lord's Prayer ends, uh, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Well, what do we surmise from that? Do we surmise that at some point, um, you know, somebody was copying Matthew and they thought because that phrase didn't appear in Luke that it shouldn't appear in Matthew? Or do we assume that it shouldn't appear in Matthew because it doesn't appear in Luke? Split opinions. Let me tell you what makes this so much easier of a discussion for me. On a Sunday morning, I would never go into this much detail, by the way. <laughs> um, I would probably not even touch the topic. Let me tell you what makes this like, super easy for me, regardless of whoever falls where on the textual issue. This is Scripture one way or the other. Because this is a quote from the Old Testament. And uh, why don't you turn there? You can see it. 1 Chronicles 29. This is all free for you budding Bible scholars out there who care deeply about the issues and the sanctity of God's Word. Um, I'm happy, fully happy, I have no qualms at all about teaching and preaching this phrase because it was already Scripture before Matthew ever penned his Gospel. 1 Chronicles 29, verse 11, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is Thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and Thou art exalted as head above all. So depending on who you ask, either Jesus is quoting the chronicler or some very zealous scribe is quoting the, the chronicler. By the way, this is already Scripture, so I'm happy to preach it as Scripture and we're going to do that. Um, so, let's go back to the verse. That was for free. That was um, very academic, I know. Some of you I know bring other versions of the Bible and um, that phrase may not be in your Bible or it might be in a footnote. Um, or it might not, uh, or it might be in parentheticals. It depends on Every different version handles that differently. But unless you have a King James, a New King James, or the modern English version, it probably doesn't appear untouched. So I figured I'd just talk about that. Okay, so now let's talk about what it means because it is, uh, one way or another, it is Scripture and it is uh, a beautiful ending to the Lord's Prayer. It says, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Kingdom. We've already talked about kingdom a lot, both in our study of Mark and already in our discussion of the Lord's Prayer. We've talked a lot about Jesus' teaching of the kingdom and how essential that is to the doctrine that Matthew lays out in his Gospel. Uh, for thine is the kingdom and the power. 
We've talked a lot about the authority that God has uh, and the fact that uh, it's related to the idea of kingdom where God has dominion everywhere. There is nothing that is out of his control. And isn't that the theme of this entire prayer so far? God, help me to submit to what you're doing because you're fully in control. I trust in you. That, that's the theme of the whole Lord's Prayer. I submit to God's authority in my life and what he's doing in the world. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. The glory of God is our ultimate purpose. We've talked about this several times recently, um, including in a recent sermon that I preached about evangelism and what is our ultimate driving uh, motivation behind telling people about Jesus so that God can be glorified. But we can extend that to our ultimate motivation for everything. What is your ultimate motivation for obeying God's commands so that God can be glorified? What is your ultimate uh, motivation for loving others so that God can be glorified? If we don't have that motivation straight, every other motivation shifts and changes. If you love others because you feel good when you do it, what happens when the, lo- when the right thing to do for someone does not make you feel good? What happens when the loving thing to do is to tell somebody that they're wrong? Does it make me feel good to tell people they're wrong? Some people it does. Some people it makes them feel very good to tell people that they're wrong. It, me, not personally. I hate confrontation. So what happens when the loving thing to do makes me feel bad? Well, if my motivation was wrong, then I stopped doing, I stopped doing it. But if my ultimate motivation was, I'm going to glorify God by doing what's best for someone else, well, then I, my motivation has stayed the same and I'm still going to do it. Our, our motivation for God's glory is so important uh, to that point. Uh, there are some YouTube educators that sometimes when we need Judah to be occupied, we will put on. And I've noticed a common theme. They, they, and these are, many of them secular people. There are some Christian ones who are like, uh, very tame. They're mostly teaching the alphabet and stuff. But sometimes they have a lesson about being nice to your friend or being nice to your neighbor. And, and I've noticed so many of them say, you should be nice to your neighbor because you feel good when you do. And we were driving out to Iowa and we really tried to limit the amount of screens that we gave Judah. But at some point on that length of trip, it just made sense to just hand him a tablet. And, you know, we choose what he does on it. But I'm sitting in the front and he's watching this video. It's an it's a early childhood educator teaching letters and colors and shapes. And then she talks about being nice. And, and why do we be nice? Because it makes us feel good. I thought, that doesn't, that's not going to work long term. <laughs> Why do we obey? And, and when we talk about obedience, okay, if we obey because it makes sense to us, or we obey because what God says lines up with our moral comp- compass, who is God in this situation? I am. And my corrupt heart that does have the law of God written on it, according to Romans, but it is all messed up according to the rest of the Bible, um, my corrupt heart is now my God if I am only obeying when it makes sense to me. 
But if I am obeying because I know that my submission to what God has said brings Him glory, well then, I will always be able to consistently want to do uh, what God has said. Okay, so uh, Jesus prays, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. I had a conversation with somebody, and honestly, right off the bat, I, I didn't write this down. I, I cannot remember who I was talking to. We are talking about, maybe this was in Sunday school. I don't know. We were talking about um, the temptations of Christ. And, and did it make any sense? I preached about this in March, but did it make any sense for the devil to uh, tempt Jesus by saying, if you bow down to me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth. And I've heard a lot of um, preachers or would-be preachers on the internet uh, say that, well, this is totally bogus because Jesus already rules over all. Um, but they're ignoring several passages that talk about the fact that Satan does have dominion in the earth. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the god of this world, the Bible says. You have to understand that expression in its context, but he does have dominion on earth. He, he rules in the hearts of everybody who is opposed to God, which is most people. Okay, But it's so significant that the end of this expression is, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. So it's ascribing to God's sovereignty and supremacy forever. Satan's dominion will end. God's never will. And though at times as we fight the battle of faith, which we talked about on Sunday, and though at times it may seem like we're not gaining enough ground, we know the battle is won. His kingdom and His power and His glory will endure forever. Long beyond the defeat of Satan and his forces, we know the end. We know the end. It's almost like we cheated on the pages of our history books and we turned to the last page early. How many of you read books and you turn to the last page? I know people who they have a principle that they will read the last few pages of a novel first because they're too anxious if they don't about how it's going to end. Okay, I think that's wild. I would be, what would be the point of reading the book at that point? Although this is way off topic, but we're almost done and we have... <laughs> I read an article about, they did a survey about if a movie got spoiled for people, if they enjoyed it less or enjoyed it more when they watched it. And the study showed, and every study is flawed, the study showed that people enjoyed the movie more if they knew how it ended. So now you know. But anyway, we know the end of this story, and that is that God wins. And His kingdom and His power and His glory endures forever. Amen. What a, what a beautiful way to end the Lord's Prayer.